Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Before we begin, a quick warning. In the past, Nighttime has welcomed guests who brought with them some controversial baggage. But this series is altogether different. References will be made to neo-Nazism, mass murder, and self-harm. If these topics are triggers to you, either sit this one out or at least proceed with caution. The views and opinions of this guest do not reflect those of Nighttime or its host, Jordan Bonaparte. Listener discretion is advised. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Welcome back to an ongoing series exploring the life and crime of Lindsay Suvonaroff, the young woman convicted of conspiracy to commit murder as a result of her role in the foiled Halifax Shopping Center Valentine's Day mass shooting plot. In the last entry in this series, titled The Story of Lindsay Suvonaroff, Part 3, Lindsay, James, and the Valentine's Day Massacre, the enigmatic Suvonaroff again joined us from behind the walls of a Canadian federal prison. During that episode, excerpts from a series of interviews I conducted with Lindsay were used to describe the events and decisions directly associated with the mass shooting plot. Over the course of that episode, Lindsay described forming a relationship with her 19-year-old co-conspirator, James Gamble, and outlined the various decisions the pair made during the planning of this foiled plot. When we left off in that episode, Lindsay had just finished walking us through the steps she took in the execution of the plot. Steps that would lead her from her home in Geneva, Illinois, to a jail cell in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Again, it was thanks to an anonymous Crime Stoppers tip that authorities were made aware of the plot and were able to apprehend the incoming American at the Halifax airport. The only death related to this plot was that of her co-conspirator, James Gamble, who took his own life while police surrounded his home. When, like, when does the gravity of all this hit you? Like, is there a moment where you're just, where you're realizing, like, oh shit, like, this is a really big deal, you know, James is dead. Like, do you, do you remember a time where it all just kind of fell on your shoulders, what had actually happened? Hmm. Well, at first I thought, Okay, this is game over. I can't go home. I can't I can't get out of this. So I thought there is really really nothing I can do. I still thought okay, I the less I say the better. But I guess it was Randall who ultimately spilled the beans or that's just what they told me. All right. So it, some time would have passed from you being arrested um with uttering threats and these interrogations when did you realize what legal battle you were facing? I was charged with conspiracy to commit murder. I think it was after Randall had said something about our plan.
It's from this point that we'll rejoin Lindsay in her dark, strange story. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, our focus will be on Lindsay Suvonaroth's life after planning death. This appeared to be a group of murderous misfits that were prepared to wreak havoc and mayhem on our community. Following the chronology of Lindsay's life and crime, we are starting this episode just days after her arrest in Halifax. As we heard described in that last episode, she'd been arrested, interrogated, and is now in custody in a different country, nearly 3,000 kilometers from her home, facing charges of conspiracy to commit murder. For Lindsay, life after planning death began in a small prison cell in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Her preoccupation with the dark and antisocial interests that we've heard so much about, immediately they've been replaced by extended periods of confusion, uncertainty, and a perpetual state of waiting. Could you just talk through that first, say, year or so before your trial? Like, what was what was going on in your life? And just what was life like for this first year after being arrested for a mass shooting plot? At first, it was very agonizing because they were keeping me on suicide watch at first because of, well, the nature of my charges. And I didn't even have a mattress. It was just like this pad on the floor that I had to sleep on. And it, and I didn't have like anything to occupy my time. I didn't have any books, anything. I wasn't even allowed to have my glasses at the time. And I just had no idea what was going on, no idea what was happening. Every now and then, they'd like take me out and bring me to the psychiatrist or they'd have me meeting with my lawyer and I was just so confused and overwhelmed. I spent most of my time sleeping and eventually they just moved me to administrative seg, which is, well, pretty much the same thing. And I eventually they let me have a book, but it was still very, very agonizing. How long did this last? It lasted for several weeks, I think. I can't give you an exact time frame because I kind of lost track of time while I was there. It sounds like when somebody describes like solitary confinement is kind of like you were just alone to just sit there confused with your thoughts. Yeah, we actually do have like some rights while we're in while we're in SAG like that. Like we're entitled to like so much yard time, so much exercise, but that I had no idea what my rights were, of course. So I just kind of spent most of my time just sitting there. Mm-hmm. And from there, I guess it must have come to a point that they realized you weren't a risk of suicide and they started to kind of move you with the regular population in the jail. Is, is that right? Kind of, yeah. They put me in this on this one unit where there were like people who, who I don't know, I guess couldn't be on any of the any of the regular units and I was just kind of there to see how I would interact with them before they would move me onto a more a more typical unit. Mm-hmm. And now given the the nature of your crime and especially given the fact that this was really big news in Nova Scotia and even in Canada when this happened, I'm thinking the other prisoners and and, and even the guards, they must have known who you were. Like what kind of reception did you did you get from people like did you feel like you know a bit of an enigma walking around there or or were you treated any differently it was different with different people but the most 
But most people who knew who I, who I was, they were mostly just curious about me. Like the big question was always, why? Why were you going to do it? And what about your actual legal case? Like, did you have any idea of what was expected to come of your of your legal case? And, and what were you told? Well, I was told the bare bones of what was going to happen. I was told there was going to be a preliminary inquiry and then eventually things would go to trial. But what confused things was the sheer amount of waiting that I had to do and how many court dates were just there to set dates for future appointments. So it was just very confusing. I didn't understand why I kept having to go to court for just setting dates. And it took forever for my preliminary inquiry to even begin. As a disoriented and out-of-place Lindsay Suvonaroth haunted the common areas and program rooms of Nova Scotia's women's prison, she was left with little more than time to reflect on her life, her crime, and what she'd lost as a result of her role in this plot. When her conversation led us to discuss regrets and grief, Lindsay had yet another surprise in store for me. Of course, as anyone listening to this has noticed, she has shown little to no emotion during the hours we spent on the phone together. But unexpectedly, that changed. Although it's only subtle, Lindsay's voice started to break, and for a moment, I believe she began to cry. Was there ever a point where it, it kind of just like washed over you like, holy shit, like what did I get myself into? Or was it just kind of like a gradual thing where it wasn't a, you know, a sudden realization? I kind of just accepted it right away. My main thought was, okay, I've made my bed, I'll lie in it. I didn't really see the point of, of like acting all, I don't know, of being at all shocked or horrified at everything. Mm-hmm. Another thing that would have been affecting you at this period of time is there's there's no secret. You've made it obvious that your relationship with James was something incredibly important to you. Now, here you are just moments away from meeting him and doing what you both plan to do, how you plan to, you know, to end your relationship and your lives together. W- was that something hard for you to deal with? Like, were you mourning his loss while going through this or uh, how did you deal with that? At first, I didn't really feel much. I didn't really feel like I had any rights to be sad or angry whatsoever. But eventually, I just started letting myself letting myself actually feel the grief that came from it. You had talked about how the gravity of it kind of slowly came over you and you didn't let really yourself feel too bad about what was happening. You were making your bed and lying in it. What regrets did you have initially, be it regrets about James or the predicament you found yourself in? So can you talk at all about any initial regrets you had and, and what they were and you know, and how it made you feel? I remember thinking a lot about, oh, what if I had done this differently? Things might have gone a bit better. What if this had happened? What if I had done this? Just the typical sort of thoughts that someone has whenever whenever they lose someone dear to them or whenever something goes very awry in their lives. So it was more so regrets related to losing James? Yeah, definitely. Is what, like specifically, what kind of 
things were you grappling with that like you know if we had it done this or if i had it done that okay are you comfortable sharing any kind of specifics I really wish that one of the things that I had covered with James was like a what if scenario, like what if somebody ends up alerting the cops about us. I would have told him not to panic because he definitely had a tendency to panic if things went even slightly awry. And of course, his panic led to him taking his own life. So I regret not being able to tell him to stay calm and try to work through things. And another thing I regretted was... Well, if you look at the chat logs, you'll see that James and I were very romantic with each other, but I never was able to articulate the words, I love you. I was planning to do that once I actually met him in person. I thought it would be a nice surprise for him. And while I was traveling there, I was very excited about being able to say those words to him. And so that that was another thing I regretted not telling him. The first years of Lindsay's incarceration may have provided her with plenty of time to adjust to her new life and reflect on the one she left behind. But given the unanswered questions related to her future, it was a time filled with uncertainty. Plain and simple, the case against Lindsay Suvonaroth was incredibly unique and many were left scratching their heads when considering how Canada's justice system could respond to this. As Lindsay described in that prior episode, in her mind, What did she really do aside from say some disturbing things on Facebook and get on a plane? But regardless of Lindsay's thoughts on the case, a series of court appearances was all it would take to turn this from a trial into a sentencing. And in much the same way her crime terrified the people of Halifax, the trials and tribulations associated with her legal battle, it captivated them. I knew that mine was a very, very odd case and that the the bulk of the evidence was just the Facebook logs. There was very little other concrete evidence aside from that. So I thought I actually had pretty good chances. My lawyer seemed pretty confident that he would be able to get those logs excluded because the police had, had made several mistakes in acquiring that evidence. So I was very, very hopeful at first. So the initial kind of legal battle was whether or not these logs would be able to be used as evidence because, again, without the logs, there would there's basically nothing because your entire contact with James, for the most part, was, was on Facebook. Do you – eventually these logs were um, included as evidence against you. Do you remember kind of finding out that the logs are going to be against you and your case just went from pretty good to really bad? Do you remember that happening? I remember my lawyer telling me about the judge that we ended up having for this case, and he really did not sound hopeful about it, given what he knew about that judge. But I thought we should take our chances with it anyway. I just wanted to see what would happen on that particular date where we were supposed to try and get the logs excluded. Of course, that ended up being shot down, and that's when I changed my plea to guilty. Ultimately, what what was it that you pled guilty to? What were the charges? The charges were conspiracy to commit murder. Mm-hmm. And so with the logs included, you changed your plea to guilty. 
and that kind of changed the narrative of kind of the legal battle because now there's not going to be a trial. You would just go directly to sentencing. Is is that right? Yeah. So that must have been a pretty big realization. You now that you know you you pled guilty, you know you're going to face the music, I guess, of of your crime. Did did a lot of time pass from between your guilty plea to the sentencing? And and if so, can you kind of talk about what you expected to happen as especially as far as a sentence? There was quite a bit of time that passed between my guilty plea and my sentencing a year, I think. And at first, I didn't think it was going to be that bad. My lawyer said, okay, we might get around 14 to 16 years. And that's what I was expecting. But of course, in the end, I ended up being sentenced to life. The defense was asking the judge for a prison sentence of between 12 and 14 years, claiming this mass murder plot was poorly planned and unlikely to ever happen. The Crown recommended a term of between 20 years and life. And Justice Peter Rosinski sided with the prosecutors, sentencing Savannah Rath to life in prison. Rosinski said her lack of remorse worked against her, noting what he called Savannah Rath's ongoing dangerousness. It's a big victory for prosecutors. The court was unequivocal that uh, this kind of conduct uh, here in Canada by an offender who is not claiming to be remorseful or renounce it will never be accepted. It seems like something that's uh, only in the news and occurs elsewhere. This made it very real, brought it home to us that uh, our community is at risk, was at risk, and that something very serious uh, was only narrowly averted. The case is every parent's worst nightmare. Savannah Rath and her co-conspirator James Gamble became obsessed with the Columbine High School killers. Justice Rosinski said he's satisfied they would have carried out their plan to kill as many people as possible on Valentine's Day at the Halifax Shopping Centre. The plot was foiled by an anonymous tip to police, followed by Gamble's suicide after police arrived at his family home. A third person involved in the plot, Randall Shepard, was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Savannah Rath gets credit for already serving three years in custody. She's eligible to apply for parole in seven years, although the judge says prospects for her rehabilitation are not promising. He ordered intensive psychological counseling and only supervised internet access. The sentence comes on the same day as the Columbine anniversary. Timing the Nova Scotia Prosecution Service calls a total coincidence. Can you tell me about what you thought when you heard the, that sentence be uh, issued to you? And, you know, like, did you feel defeated, depressed, or were like everything else where you're like, I'm just going to take it on the chin? So t- tell me a bit about what it feels like to sit in a courtroom and have the judge deliver a life sentence to you. I didn't feel much of anything, really. It was, th- it's that easy. You just, it was just like another day for you. Yeah, pretty much. I'm going to change gears slightly at this point in the episode and switch the focus from events that occurred in the past and instead consider what Lindsay is up to in the present day. And of course, we'll hear her plans for the future. But let's start with present day. What is prison life like for an American neo-Nazi obsessed with Columbine and with an unhealthy interest in mass murder? Well, to be honest, in Lindsay Suvonaroth's case, it doesn't sound a whole lot different than what she was up to before this all started. 
Of course, aside from the rigidly structured days and the lack of internet access. You're just like before you went in, like your life, it seems like you're kind of keeping a lot of the same interests. Like, so maybe just talk a bit about what kind of things are you working on and, and doing? Well, I finished writing this one novel. It's called Grit and Glory. I spent so much time working on it. I was At one point, I was writing about 10 pages a day. And right now, it's about like 77,000 words, I think, which is a pretty good length for a novel. And What is it? What's, what's the book about? Well, it's about a beauty blogger named Glory who secretly has an interest in murder and gore and all sorts of dark things. And on this gore website, she meets a hacker named Grit, and together they plan a series of murders. That um, that sounds familiar in a way to another story I know of a girl from Illinois who met a guy online. Is this maybe does does this story have any connection with your life story and your relationship with James? It has some connection to my life story. It's largely inspired by it, but most of it is fictionalized. Hmm. So inspired by it, but fictionalized. Like, is there elements of your real story that found their way into a book about a pretty similar situation to your own? To some degree, yes. Some of the dialogue was taken almost word for word from my chat logs with James. And also, I, th- I think it's kind of like one thing that I would be interested in seeing is where your real life story with James ended before anything, anything happened, like with your arrest at the airport. I'm guessing in the book that doesn't happen. Like w- when you were writing about these two people meeting and, and actually going on a spree and, a, you know, or, or whatever it is that happens in the book, were, were you possibly reliving or fantasizing about what may have happened with you through the characters of this book like if you weren't arrested I don't really think so there were a lot of details in the book that are that are quite different from what James and I were doing and so once I got to a certain point once I got to the point where Gloria actually leaves her home to go meet Grit things kind of went completely fictional I was able to kind of of like like put on my writer's hat and just like be a writer, not really writing about myself. Um, like a, a lot of your, the nature, like the details of your crime, a lot of it was, you know, written out and kind of, although like, like thought about almost as, as imaginatively, like this is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to look. This is how it'll play out. Like, do you feel like there's any chance that, your your creativity in terms of writing and coming up with these dark stories like do you think that that may have influenced your crime like is there a connection between you know the part of your brain that comes up with these dark stories and the part of your brain that led you to to pursue this this massacre with james i think it might have especially when you consider that i was already thinking of the things that I would say to my potential victims. I think it kind of comes from, from like the same part of my brain that comes up with these stories, kind of. Seeing as Lindsay just spoke about her novel, I'll share a bit of an update. 
The interview you're hearing was recorded several weeks ago. Since then, Lindsay has sent me a few chapters of the book. And my goodness, I can honestly say I have never read anything like it. Not even close. Like she said in that prior excerpt, it very much reads like a mildly fictionalized or slightly exaggerated version of her own life story. Except it's much more nightmarish. And, and not nightmarish as in dark and violent. I mean nightmarish as in disorienting and just deeply disturbing. But regardless, that's what Lindsay's doing now. Reading and writing. Just like before all this started. Except until at least the year 2025, her bedroom has been replaced by a Canadian prison cell. And that brings us to the next segment. Based on her current sentence, which makes her eligible for parole in 2025, Lindsay does have a faint light at the end of the tunnel. One that gets a little brighter with each passing day. So that leads me to ask what, if anything, she has planned for her eventual freedom. Do you spend a lot of time thinking and preparing for when I get out of here or or is it too far away for you to spend any, you know, time thinking about that? It's not really something I think about. Do you do you have any plans? Like I know it's a, a ways away, but do you have any plans for what you want your life to be like when you get out? I'm hoping to have my novel published that much, I know. But other than that, I really don't like to think about that far ahead in the future. I prefer to just focus on the day-to-day life in here. In the day-to-day life in there, like, is it, do you kind of view it like that, like one day at a time? Like, is it, is it rough where you have to kind of grind each day away or, or are you living like a fairly normal life? Sometimes it gets a bit difficult, but for the most part, it's, it's just everyday life. It's nothing to nothing too big and do people like you're in a different prison now far from nova scotia do, do people know who you are like are, are do you stand out in any way or i guess everybody in there has a story but do you feel like you stand out to others a little yes some people know a little bit about who i am and why i'm here and of course people talk especially in prison where you're an American in a prison in Canada, have you is is going back to the U.S. something you want to do, and is that even an option, or are you going to be here in Canada until your sentence is over? Like, can you kind of talk about that aspect of it? Once I'm on parole, I will be going back to the states. No question about it. I've already I already know that I'm going to be deported once my time here is up. So when, when your appeal or when, when you receive parole, no matter what the conditions of it, you're, you're out of Canada. Yeah. Those of you listening who followed Lindsay's story before these episodes or have read about her since are likely aware that her case is still before the courts due to her appeal of the life sentence. In fact, several parts of her story that I was interested in discussing with her had to be avoided because they may be brought up at that appeal, which seems likely to begin in March, probably weeks after this episode's released. What you are about to hear, at this point, is about all she's willing to say about her appeal. The biggest thing, I guess, in your life right now, legally, is your is your appeal. Can, can you tell me what what's going on with the appeal? Like, what exactly are you appealing, and what what do you hope comes of that? Like, what is the kind of the best case scenario? 
I'm appealing my sentence, not my conviction. I'm hoping to have it reduced, but I'm not going to be, say, be saying very much about it and what's going on with it because, again, it's still underway. But um, the appeal doesn't change that you're pleading. That you, it's not like a change of plea. You're just pleading kind of the 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 sentence or the appealing the sentence and like kind of the more administrative parts of it. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, is there any idea of when this will happen? Like, when will we get news on what's happening? I think my next court date is in March. I don't remember the exact day. Now it's time to start wrapping up this episode, and with it, this series. Since we've started, we've learned a lot of uncomfortable things about both the Valentine's Day mass shooting plot and its surviving would-be shooter, Lindsay Suvonaroth. But there are two last pieces I want to use as a sort of grim bow to place on this series. The first is a message from Lindsay to anyone affected by her crime in any way. For people listening who live in Halifax and you know have been shocked and scared by your plot, in your trial and sentencing, you never spoke on the stand. Do you have anything to say to people who in some way had been either directly or indirectly had been affected by your crime? I will say that I am not the one who is the greatest danger to the public. The people have more to fear from their own government, from their own leaders, than they do from all of the mass killers in the world. To end the episode, I want to use a short clip that really serves two purposes. Many have asked whose idea it was to commit a mass shooting, Lindsay's or her now-deceased boyfriend, James Gamble's. When I asked Lindsay that question, the answer she gave really was what I expected her to say, but she touched on a broader idea I had about this fatal pair. The idea that it took two uniquely damaged minds to transform this plot from dark fantasy into a terrifying reality. In the the mainstream coverage of this crime, you very much so have been painted as the ringleader who, you know, who possibly even manipulated James. Some have said even using your sexuality have manipulated him. And how do you see the relationship between you and James in terms of which of you were the dominant one in terms of uh, in the context of planning this attack? I would say it was about equal between me and James. We both contributed our own things to the plan. I believe that people see me as the more dominant party just because that I was more outspoken, more confident, especially in my writing and my speech. So it looked to outsiders that maybe I was the one controlling him. But here's one thing that I believe in. I believe in like the Eastern principle of yin and yang. Now in Western culture, we believe that yang energy, the more forceful, outgoing sort of energy is more dominant. But in reality, Yin and Yang energies balance each other out. It was it was less me overtaking James than it was our own personality sort of blending together and sort of assisting each other. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. I want to dedicate this series to the anonymous informant who did the right thing and prevented a tragedy. Whoever you are, if you're listening to this, my hat's off to you, and I hope you know how much of a difference you've made in so many people's lives.
Again, I invite you to contact me privately and confidentially so that I may provide my personal thank you. I'd also like to send my condolences to the families and friends of anyone involved in this story. To that point, I also invite anyone close to this story to contact me, especially so if you're interested in sharing your memories or thoughts with nighttime listeners via future episodes that provide updates to this story. To Lindsay Suvonaroth, I hope the various programs you access while incarcerated help you become a better person that's more compatible with our society. And I hope that when the point comes you get freedom, you're able to safely enjoy it. And on a lighter note, I'd also like to thank Lindsay for all the bizarre emails her appearance on the show has brought to me. I've had about an equal amount of people write to complain about having her on the show as I did from people who seem to be in love with her and are requesting assistance in getting in touch with her. What a world. Now for some thanks. A huge shout out to the Canadian bands Voxomnia and Paragon Cause for providing the musical and ambient themes for the series. You can check out both great bands by following the links in the episode notes. And the biggest thanks is for all of you listening. Without you, I'd have no excuse to spend so much time doing this. In front of you who want more nighttime, please check out the patron group. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support the creation of the show and access the supporter-exclusive feed, which provides ad-free early releases of episodes in addition to prior episodes no longer available on this free feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members to the group. Caitlin, Rob DeSills, Elizabeth M., Lacey, Amy Gillis, Wendy G., Jen the Black, Cynthia Marie, Nick McLeod, Bridget P&R. I appreciate your generous support of Nighttime. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities, both on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.